So today, today, we're going to hear five myths about fitness. Hey, what's up? Welcome back. Uh, my name is Michael Sano, the host of Michael Sano Has a Podcast. And today I have a special guest. I have an honored guest, um, Dr. Blaine Harrison. Dr. Harrison, welcome to the show. How are you? You're doing well, thanks. Thanks for having me. No, this is awesome. I have had you, as you guys know, I am at the University of Florida in the Applied Physiology and Kinesiology program. Um, and you've been my professor for three terms now. <laughs> you and so can you tell people what you do at the University of Florida? Sure. So um, my title is technically is an instructional associate professor. Uh, so I'm a teaching faculty here. So that's why uh, Michael's had me for multiple classes. I teach primarily in our, um, our graduate program in applied physiology and kinesiology, uh, but I teach five different classes in that program. So it's kind of hard for a student to, to get through the program without having me at least once. <laughs> Some unfortunate souls have to have me, I guess, uh, multiple times in one semester. Um, but yeah, I, I tend to teach the classes that are popular. So now, now I'm in the master's program. You do it in the undergraduate and the master's? Yeah, I teach a little bit in the undergraduate program. When I, I've been here, this is my seventh year at UF. And when I was first year, I taught a little bit more in the undergraduate program than the graduate program, but it's kind of shifted over time. So the only real class that I teach to undergraduates is um, sports nutrition. Um, but I, I deal more with the undergraduates because I'm the internship coordinator as well on top of teaching. And so I tend to communicate with uh, undergraduate students a lot more in the, in the realm of internships than, than teaching. Now, how did you wind up at the University of Florida? Because I went through, yes, I did. I went through your CV <laughs> and you have... What is it? Uh, a BA in biology at the University of Virginia, a master's in education in exercise physiology from the same institution. You have a master's in athletic training from Virginia Commonwealth and a PhD in sports medicine from, again, the University of Virginia. Um, why did you leave Virginia? What happened? What brought you to Florida? Yeah, so... I finished all of my work at UVA in 2011, and um, the only job that I was offered at that time was at a small school in Farmville, Virginia. Yes, there is a place called Farmville. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's called Longwood University. They, uh, their basketball teams, both men's and women's, just made the tournament for the first time in their history last year, so that was exciting for them. Um, and so I was hired there to you know be an associate or assistant professor in exercise science and you know taught a lot of the same things that i'm teaching now um so it was a way for me to to kind of get my feet wet because i hadn't really taught before before joining that faculty there um spent the five years there but each of my five years i kind of thought that it you know i was looking to see what what other opportunities might might be available um in my fourth year there i actually interviewed for a for a job here at uf but wasn't offered the position and another job came available the next year and I'd already been down to campus here and, you know, met the faculty and kind of looked around and kind of knew what, what to expect. And so the job the second time around was better suited for what I was teaching and what I could bring to the department. So um, 
when I was offered the position, you know, being able to move from kind of a smaller liberal arts type of school to a to a big power five type of school is always something that I wanted to be able to do. And since I don't, you know, even though I have a PhD, I don't particularly do research in, in the way that most PhDs do. I was more interested in teaching. So to, to be offered a position where I could, my sole responsibility was to teach and, and my internship responsibilities as well. That's really, you know, but I could do that at a big, big institution like UF. I didn't think there would be too many other opportunities like, like this that came along. So, um, so I jumped on it and I've never looked back and, you know, proud to be a Gator, happy to be here and uh, hope, hope to be here as long as they'll have me. <laughs> <laughs> That's Well, what was the transition like going from Farmville <laughs> to Gainesville? I mean, that is a, a, University of Florida is a powerhouse. Yeah. It is so if you look at an aerial view of the campus, the campus is dominated by the swamp, by uh, the aquatic center, by the, all the fields and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So it was um, it wasn't as much as a culture shock as I thought it might be, because I did most of my education at a, at a big school, you know, at UVA. UVA is not oh, all right. Yeah, that makes sense. UVA is not as big as UF. I mean, it's probably two thirds the size of UF, you know, both in student population and in just overall area of the campus. UF is, a, is quite a large campus. Um, fortunately, APK, while it's a big department, sort of, it's a, it's a much bigger department than what I left at Longwood. It's not a big department in terms of UF size of things. So, you know, class sizes when I first got here were, you know, around 80 to 90 students, which was a lot, but I wasn't, I was accustomed to having around 50 students at Longwood. So it wasn't a huge change. Um, and now, you know, we, we tend to keep class sizes a little bit more under control. And since I teach in the graduate program, you know, it tends to be even smaller. So um, that wasn't a big problem. Just, you know, you know giving, giving myself, I guess, the confidence to, to say I belong here along with all of these other um, you know, geniuses that I seem to be surrounded with and on the rest of the faculty, you know, was something that, that I needed to kind of spend a year or two getting my feet wet and saying, oh, okay, yeah, I belong here. So I want to address that um, because remember I said your CV. Yeah. So this is all of your certifications. Yeah. There I think are six. No, there's 14 certifications here. I just went online over the past uh, over the past week and joined the uh, College of Sports Medicine the Applied uh, Psychology, uh, Sports Psychology Association and the ISSN yeah. and thought, wow, all right, I'm pretty cool. And I already belonged to uh, the NSCA. So I was like, look at me. Yeah. I've got all these. I'm a member. <laughs> and then I got to your CV and I just felt I was like, OK, whatever. <laughs> um, so can you techno gym master trainer? I am. I love the techno gym bike, so yeah. I'm so psyched about that. Um, red cord, what is red cord? Um, all of these different things. What are all these certifications? Yeah. So I, before I went back and started getting my second round of degrees um, in athletic training and sports medicine, I spent I don't know, five years or so as a personal trainer um, and kind of became a certification junkie. I just wanted to keep building on, you know, the, I had the CSCS 
at the time. I got that in 2001 and I had the ACSM. Well, I think at the time I got it, it was called health, Fit, health and fitness instructor. Now it's morphed into, I think they call it exercise physiologist certified or something. Mm -hmm. um, it's just basically the same credential, but I had those two. Is it though? Is because is, that was a question that I was gonna I was gonna come to office hours and ask yeah. you about. <laughs> it's effectively What's the, the difference same. I mean, I, those I, honestly, I don't I don't keep up with the ACSM really as much as I probably should. And and those all of those certifications that you see on my CV, they're all expired with the exception of the CSCS. I, that's the only one that I've maintained. I think there are a few that okay. sort of you know, once you get them, they're good for, for life. You don't have to you know, maintain continuing education stuff and renew them. Um, but the only one that I actively renew and then I, and I deal with on a regular basis is the CSCS with the NSCA because I do a lot of stuff with them. Um, and so a lot of the rest of those were just things that I thought would help me when I was a personal trainer back in the aughts. And then other things that have just kind of come along, you know, throughout, throughout the rest of my education from there. Um, the red cord, is uh basically just a souped up trx um it's uh it was developed you know for rehabilitation settings it's it's a series of ropes you know that, that you can attach a variety of different slings to and bungees and that sort of thing so you can kind of unload individuals and have them uh you know perform a variety of different movements within it um you know it's not i i, I got that um when i was a phd student because one of my mentors there was using it in their lab and they had a relationship with the company um and so i you know, learned how to do it and got certified in it and um you know i, I haven't, it hasn't really caught on they tried to try to try to create some sort of like miniature version of it that could be used for for home purposes but i never really see it anywhere uh, anymore i think trx is just kind of cornered that market when it comes to suspension training but is red cord more clinical is it that is. Yeah. is it more in the clinicals yeah that's a really good search but you're also a pilates instructor <laughs> I, well, I, I mean that's expired, i'm kind of blown yeah. away by all this so yeah in the in the mid 2000s i had a had a significant back injury so um, i used pilates on a, on a whim just to to kind of help rehab from that and um enjoy what i was doing and just said okay well let me go and get certified it's just math math you be, certification you, you, and then I, I never, I never, certification I never, junkie. Yeah, I'm a certification why? junkie. Yeah. Right. yeah. So I was kind of like, I, I got some Pilates videos and I was doing just some exercise on my own there to try and rehab for my back injury and liked what I was doing and, and I uh, wanted to put more of it into the personal training sessions that I was doing. So I went and got the certification, um, which was fun because I got to go up to New York City and you know, do it at their headquarters up there and then come back to. Oh, wow. Back. But I've never like stood up in front of a group exercise, like a Pilates class and led Pilates. It was always just, I, I included Pilates type of exercise in the personal training sessions that I was doing, but I never did like a full on Pilates session, but I still do it to this day. I still incorporate it in my own training. So, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I noticed it in our strength and conditioning course. It comes out in the stretching uh, portion of it. Now, one of the certifications and this one, um, I'm curious about it because in your, it says your doctoral dissertation going into the Wayback Machine, yeah. um, uh, core function and transition running in triathlon. And one of your certifications is a level one triathlon coach. Um, so you're like all over, just all over the <laughs> spectrum in terms of fitness. 
from the the uh, not sedentary, but the 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 static to the full on expressive motion. I mean, everywhere, everywhere. Yeah, we call that a jack of all trades and a master of none. That's what, that's what I like to say. <laughs> well, based on all of these certifications, you are by far one of the most qualified people to come up with um, these five fitness myths that you uh, that you sent over to me. I gave you just for the viewers. I gave Doctor uh, Harrison a a task. I, the student, gave the professor a task um, for this episode, and that was, uh, at first I thought I would come up with my own fitness myths that I saw on uh, on social media, but then I thought, why don't I let Dr. Harrison come up with them, and you sent me these. you have them in front of you, or do you want me to read off the first one? I don't, yeah, you can just read them off. I don't have them in front of me. That's no problem. So the first one is using exercise for spot reduction of fat and how i think we'll do this is you will just go into it and tell us what's what yeah it's interesting that that, that myth stemmed from my time as a personal trainer and maybe there are still personal trainers that that see clients that ask for this and that's what led me to put it on this list is i imagine that there are still people that come into the fitness setting and work with a personal trainer and, and ask for you know, I want to have my my belly, you know, fat reduced. I want to have the fat around my legs reduced. And, you know, they, they look for these specific targeted areas without fully understanding how the physiology of, of weight loss really works. We don't really get... Well, they're actually, and, and I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, they're actually products on the market that, that make uh, these these claims that it will do this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, from an exercise standpoint, and I, I can, I can speak to that, you know, from an exercise standpoint, we don't, you know, our, we don't get to choose where the body draws its energy from, you know, if, if the body needs to draw energy from our fat stores, we don't get to say that it's going to come just from you know, fat cells that are around our legs or fat cells that are around our belly or around our arms or anything like that. It's just, it's, you know, there's going to be signals, hormonal signals that are sent around the body and, wherever they interact with the fat cells, wherever they are, then they'll release fatty acids into the blood that can then go to the muscles that are working and can be used as, as energy there. So we don't get to, to choose. Now, the products that you're thinking about are that are marketed as, as localized sort of fat reducers, like the, the, the cool sculpting sort of things that you can buy, you know, from, from home and, and put them on. I, I, I'm not into that literature, so I don't know how well those those actually work and, and, and what the science is behind them, uh, you know, other than applying cryotherapy and thinking that that's somehow going to reduce um, fat cells. I just, I don't really buy it. I don't, I don't really see the, the science in that, but I haven't looked deep enough into it either. Um, but from an exercise it seems to be, but... it seems to be an even draw. That's basically the body pulls it at an even draw as it needs it from adipose correct yeah yeah as, yeah it's an it's a storage form it's a fuel tank you know and so as as it's needed you draw from it but it's it's a ubiquitous fuel tank there's not a it's not it's not special in one part of your body just because i'm doing sit-ups i'm doing 100 or 200 sit-ups it doesn't mean that the energy that i need to, com to perform those sit-ups is going to come from the adipose tissue that is around my belly and the other problem this notion of spot reduction is 
overestimating just how much energy you're expending in exercise because you really aren't expending that much energy uh, <laughs> in exercise. And so, you know, you've got hundreds of thousands of calories stored up in your fat cells. And so even if you needed, you know, 500 of those calories to get through that one exercise session, that's, you know, that's a drop in the bucket to, to what is stored. So, you know, that it's just, it's a tough, it's a tough question to get asked from a client. That's why I brought it up on this myth list because they, you know, they really will, at least in my experience, you know, I, I want to work this, just these particular areas because that's where I want to be toned up. And I'm like, well, what does, what does that mean to you? What is define tone? You know, like, I don't, I don't understand that. Um, and so it's, it can be a difficult client, you know, in some cases uh, to try and educate and, and help have them see, Hey, this is, you know, we're here doing an exercise to get your body able to do movement better, you know, Okay. That stuff you're talking about is it's kind of a combination of what we're doing here plus what you do outside of the gym. So that you know creates more of a conversation there. So if we can't do spot reduction, okay. what can we do to reduce adipose tissue, body fat, in our clients in the population? Uh, probably biggest thing is just to educate them on appropriate nutritional habits. Uh, that would be, and and to give them realistic expectations of what they're going to get out of exercise. You know, the, an individual that's coming in to work with a personal trainer or a strength coach who has a need for weight loss and, and a desire for weight loss, they're probably also on the lower end of the fitness scale. They're probably not very fit. And so the level of exercise they're going to be able to do, the intensity of exercise they're going to be able to, to undertake isn't going to expend that much energy. So, if they want to lose weight, they're going to have to do that on the on the intake side, not on the output side. You know, it's a energy or, um, weight loss is all an energy balance equation, you know, energy intake versus energy output. So, if you're not really going to be expending that much energy, then you have to reduce the amount of energy that you're bringing in. Um, so, yeah, that's that's. I mean, well, I, that's interesting because being in the military, we at the beginning of what's called the global war on terror and they started deploying people we were getting a lot of people from the national guard who were getting deployed who were overweight and then they were starting to pull in this uh this concept of warrior fitness and that warrior fitness saw at least in my unit drastic reductions in body fat over a three-month period and it was just constant moving and adding more intensity to the training so more intensity leads to more exertion which leads to sort of a domino effect yeah and my guess is there was probably not the ability to eat whenever they wanted to eat whatever they wanted to eat no not at all (laughs) from both ends of that equation energy input and energy output there was more energy output and less energy input. So yeah, I would expect, you know, the weight loss to occur there. Um, yeah. Consistency is, is really the key when it comes to weight loss. So this notion of spot reduction, I guess, and we're laboring it a little bit, but another reason that I don't like it is because it implies that there's something that I can do, you know, in a week or two and I can just target this one area and get the way it's to look the way I want it to look. And it's just, it goes against oh, well, my yeah, philosophy no. of you got, this is a lifetime this is a lifestyle sort of thing you got to just be consistent with it and that's the results will come if you're consistent so so basically it's changing behavioral trends in the population 
will lead to it and dietary trends. Right. All right, we will move on to number two. Female weight training makes them bulky. Yeah. Can you tell that I, I tended to have more female clients when I was a personal trainer than, than male clients? Uh, and so it, I'm, <laughs> I had the same thing. Don't even worry about it. So I kind of, you know, as a piggyback off of the, the spot reduction thing and the notion that, at least from my experience, the female clients that I had tended to be a little gun shy when it came to resistance training, particularly if, if I was asking them to go at a little bit heavier weights, you know, still safe and still effective and still within what they could perform. But if it started to get a little heavy, it made people, made people nervous, you know, it made females nervous because they didn't want to get bulky. And Am I going to bulk up? Yeah. And so that, that term is, to me is, is I asked the same question, like with, with toning, if somebody says, I want to tone up, what does that mean? You know, if I want, if I'm afraid of getting bulky, well, what does that mean? You know, everybody's got a different definition of what that is in their mind and what they see in the mirror. So, um, you know, if somebody is undergoing, you know, the appropriate prescription of resistance training where you could potentially put on some muscle and they somehow put on five pounds of muscle over the course of five months, because that's about as fast as you'd be able to do that. Are they going to then look in the mirror and think that they look bulky with an extra five pounds of muscle? I don't know. Maybe they would. Maybe they wouldn't. That's up to the individual. But, um, I, you know, part of that, that myth is that people underestimate just how difficult it is to actually add muscle mass to your frame and, and keep it there. Um, you know, it's not something that happens in the span of two or three weeks. You know, it's months and months of consistent, you know, appropriate diet, appropriate resistance exercise prescriptions. Um, but the reason that I don't like that as a myth is because it causes females to be in the weight room doing resistance exercise, which is great because they should be, but mm-hmm. underloading, you know, the exercise and basically wasting and, uh, their time. You know, like yeah. if you get, 20 repetitions of an exercise in and it didn't feel like you did anything and you didn't, you didn't do anything, you know? So, you know, don't be afraid to, to go a little heavy. Yes. Well, an interesting, even though it's not the same, uh, gender, it's, it's, um, going back to the military, um, Navy SEALs, Navy SEALs are go, go, go elite athlete individuals who have tremendous strength tremendous stamina and endurance um but they if you actually see what navy seals really look like they don't look like arnold schwarzenegger they don't look like they they look like triathletes mostly yeah Yeah, no i I had a had a good friend i born and raised in virginia beach spent 10 years lifeguard on the beach there and had a a friend who lifeguarded with me who ended up as a seal and yeah he was he was a triathlete, you know, he, he looked like a triathlete, he was, and he looked like one. And so, um, and we had some other SEALs that work with us and yeah, you're right. They're not bodybuilders at all. And so the kind of training that they're doing is certainly much more of a mixed approach of, of modalities, speed, agility, mm-hmm. aerobic work, power, you know, all kinds of stuff. So they're, they're not worried about really getting bulky because they're not spending all of their time in the weight room, just doing hypertrophy type of, of exercise. So. Cool. All right. So number two was weight training will not make women bulky. Um, now number three is training to failure in every resistance exercise set. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Come on. Oh, I love training to failure. I know. I know. Please. Yeah. No, it's 
it's a risk reward. It's all whenever you're doing any sort of exercise, there's always a risk reward ratio that you have to come up with. So the risk of taking every set to failure is that you lead to overtraining over time, that you lead to some sort of injury over time. And and so if your mindset is I have to take every set to failure, then you're setting yourself up. Eventually something's going to break, you know? And so being able to feel confident that I don't have to take this set to failure, as long as I'm, you know, close to failure, if, if I'm, you know, I, you don't want to be wasting your time either. I just said, mm-hmm. if somebody's doing 20 reps and it doesn't feel like anything, they wasted their time. So you're somewhere on that continuum where you either go to failure or you're underloading and you're not doing enough. You want to be over here on, you know, on closer to the failure side than not, but you don't, you can still have some reps in reserve. And that's actually a, a form of um, internal load that you can ask an athlete at, at the end of a set, how many reps did you, do you think you had left? And the answer should be around two. I never thought of that. Yeah. I've never thought of that. That's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, if the answer's around two, then they were they were probably, you know, loaded around about, about right. You know, and that doesn't mean that you need to then jump up for the next set, you know, and, and okay, well, you could do two more. Let's add five pounds and, and see what you can do now. You know, stick with the prescription the way it was written. And the way that I would approach this notion of training to failure is if somebody is really gung-ho about wanting to train to failure if they're going to be doing multiple sets for an exercise which almost certainly they will then just save that last set for the failure set and i i sort of refer to that as a check set you know if i've got okay four sets of six that i'm trying to do on a bench press i'll do six 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 and then on that last set i want to see you know i've had some fatigue built in over the first three sets let's see what what's left in me now and how many let's go to failure now and see what's left because then if you do more repetitions than you were prescribed, then you might have been underloaded, you know, uh, or you may just be having a good day. So the NSCA does have something, they a very conservative approach. They call the two for two rule, which says if you can perform two additional reps on the last set of an exercise for two consecutive sessions, then you should go up and wait. And so that's my, that's what I think of when I think about training to failure. It doesn't have to be every single set, um, but maybe on that last set of every exercise, you know, see what you can do. Well, I'm and I'm guilty of that. I am wholly guilty of it because and I will blame the military for it with um, (laughs) you got. Come on. You got one more push up in you, Sano. You got one more push up. And and we do. We we. But what's interesting is I have a funny little story. You know who Abby Steiner is? She ran for Kentucky. So. It came across my YouTube recommended because I watch a lot of like swimming and track meet stuff. And I saw her run and I was like, oh, my gosh, I got to go buy new running shoes. So (laughs) I went out and started sprinting, um, not the whole way around, but just doing these these uh, sprints with with a little bit of a walk for a break. So I'm just running the, the straightaways on the track. And then I went yesterday and I said, I just sprinted yesterday. I cannot, cannot. I have to go at 30% today. Otherwise, like you said, I'm going to get an injury. I'm going to overuse. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. so I'm learning. Yeah, there's, yeah we got to, got to rein it in a little bit. I mean, that's a good problem to have. If you're the type of person that wants to go out all the time, that's a good problem to have, but you got to rein it in, you know, I, otherwise, you're eventually going to be forced to rain it in. So yeah, it's like you said, yeah. it's risk reward. Um, yeah. All right, so number four is, hey, 
this falls right in with this past summer's um, <laughs> nutrition uh, nutrition class. Vegan diets don't support athletes. I learned so much this semester. Take it away. Yeah. So I'm not a vegan. You know, I, I, I'm not. I'll start by saying that. But uh, there is a belief, I think, amongst individuals that like, particularly like the resistance train, like the weight train, like to like to be in the gym that, you know, a vegan diet doesn't provide sufficient amounts of protein and quality protein to support muscle growth. Um, and there's no, there's no question that animal sources of protein are, are um, better absorbed and, and contain more of the, the essential amino acids, including leucine that we need to kind of stimulate muscle protein uh, growth and that sort of thing. But it doesn't mean that you can't get it from, from plant sources. So, um, you know, you might need a little bit more plant protein if only if your only source of protein is coming from plants you might need a little bit more food consumption like the total amount of food that you're consuming in a day to reach mm -hmm. the you know the protein goals specifically for the essential amino acids that we need to have those muscles grow um and complementary complementary protein sources as well correct so yeah i mean a, a vegan diet a vegan is going to be very good at, at creating complementary sources of proteins to, to build a, a, a meal that has all the essential amino acids within it. And there are certainly plant sources like soy and like um, quinoa and, and some other grains out there that have almost all of the essential amino acids that we need and, and can be a very solid you know, contributor to Can you explain diet. that concept of complementary protein just real quickly? Yeah, so the body uses 20 amino acids um, from the foods that we eat. So proteins are, are nothing but you know, collections of amino acids, these individual molecules. And there are 20 of that, 21 of them, excuse me, uh, that, that sort of bound together and form the, the proteins and the foods that we eat. So when we consume them, they're broken up and the body, you know, absorbs individual amino acids and then sends them off to the various muscles and other tissues to build up new proteins in that cell. Well, animal sources of protein are going to have all 21 that you need. So whenever you eat an animal source of protein, it's called a complete protein because it has all all of the amino acids that we need in our diet. Plant sources um, don't tend to have all of the amino acids that we need. And so uh, a vegan athlete will need to you know, do their research and, and figure out what amino acids are within their favorite plant sources and see which ones are missing and then see if they can find another source that can make up for that. The, the sort of tried and true complementary protein is a, a, a rice and beans. You know, they're, they're, the collection of those two uh, foods tends to create, you know, a full allotment of the amino acids that we need, and it's you know very easy thing to put together. But it's not the only one. I mean, there are, there are other. But that's the idea of a complementary protein source is that you have multiple different types of plant sources of food in that meal, and the collection of all of that plant source, all of those plant foods, add up to all the amino acids that we need um, in our diet. Cool. Very cool. Um, yes, notice I dropped some complimentary. So I learned and I did. I got an 86 on the final exam. So well done, Dr. Harris. Congratulations. Thank you. And now our final myth, protein supplements build bigger muscles. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, so this is everybody's. <laughs> 
favorite particularly again and you can tell maybe that i'm a bit of a, a meathead i guess I'm, I'm more of a resistance exercise type of person than an aerobic type of person but um, any any exercise or yeah nothing wrong with that but you know most most individuals that are you know consistently doing resistance training the idea of consuming enough protein is going to be forefront in their mind and so you know they're going to want to reach for for any sort of protein supplement that they can you know have their shakers with them at all times and being able to just kind of create the protein shakes on a whim and there's nothing wrong with that but it's the protein shake in and of itself isn't what is stimulating the muscles to grow and i don't think i don't think anybody actually has that thought but it's still out there as a myth that you know it's not like, i think people believe just, that if they drink protein that yeah. it does something to build muscles yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I, there's nothing. I believe. Yeah, I shouldn't say nothing because it. I mean, the the protein drinks that most people will consume have a lot of whey protein in it, and whey protein mm -hmm. is an excellent source of protein because it has mm -hmm. ample amounts of essential amino acids. It has ample amounts of one particular amino acid called leucine that is does seem to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So they're not doing anything wrong. I'm not trying to steer people away from from protein shakes. I mean, I. Look, I'm transparent. I, I have mine whenever I'm done with my training session as well. Same here. Um, yeah. So there's nothing wrong with them, but that isn't what is creating the growth. It's the work you do in the gym that is creating the stimulus to grow. You're just providing the resources needed to allow it to grow. You know, and so you can get those resources from a variety of sources. It doesn't have to be from that from that protein shake. There are potential economic benefits to that because protein shakes tend to be a little bit less expensive than like buying a bunch of steak and chicken and that sort of thing. Um, they're easier. You don't have to cook things up. They're just right there. You just drink it. You're done. So there's a there's a you know, an ease of use uh, aspect of it. So again, there's nothing wrong about it. But this notion that they're magic, you know, and that if I don't have my protein shake, I'm not going to build as much muscle, is just not true, right? I mean, protein shakes have been relatively new uh, yeah. to, to the to our culture in the last 20 or 30 years. So people have been muscular before then. But. Well, is there a window? So I remember this from the, uh, from, from the textbook there, there's a window afterwards and from the ISSN uh, position statement on protein. And mm -hmm. does the ingestion, the, the drinking or eating of protein afterwards extend the window for muscle uh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So no, it doesn't extend the window. I mean, there, there is, so you're referring to something called an anabolic window, which is mm -hmm. this notion that by, you know, engaging in, in exercise training, you know, you break some tissue down and you create an environment in your body that, that is uh, primed to cons you know, to take in amino acids and, and start to rebuild the proteins that were broken down. Um, and so yes, that anabolic window does exist. But there's nothing particularly special about consuming protein after a training session as compared to before a training session or potentially even during a training session. Um, not, not many people will consume protein during a training session because it tends to upset the stomach and, and that sort of thing. And I don't advocate for that, but I do advocate for what the ISSN recommends, which is to spread your protein intake out over several boluses every three to four hours throughout the day. And so if you're doing that, then you're going to be taking some protein in before your training session. And you're going to be taking some in after your training session. And then again, later on in the day, and then again, right before bed. And so you're going to have this consistent, steady supply of protein coming into, 
into the body to help support that recovery. You know, if all you did was ever just consume protein immediately after exercise, you're probably not going to create as much growth or as much adaptation from the exercise that you're doing as you would if you spread that protein out a little bit more throughout the day. Now, there was some information in the class about um, ingestion, drink uh, the drinking or eating a protein before bed. Yeah. Now, what can you explain that a little bit? What does that? It's sort do? of a, a yeah. It's it's a missed opportunity, right? I mean, okay. People get a little concerned about consuming food before bed because it feels like it's empty calories. You're about to go to sleep. You don't really need much energy. So that energy that you consume may be stored as fat. But protein's sort of special in a way when it comes to macronutrients. I mean, you can overfeed on protein and and you know potentially put on some some adipose tissue from that, but in the overfeeding studies that exist that overfed people on protein, they didn't tend to really put on any fat mass, even when they consumed 800 to 1,000 extra calories a day in protein, they didn't really seem to put on any fat mass. And so there's no real fear that if, really if it's just protein that you're consuming before mm -hmm. bed, there's no real fear that that's gonna turn into fat, but it does support muscle protein synthesis while you're sleeping. And while we're sleeping, that is another big opportunity for the body to recover and adapt and, and grow and repair all the damaged tissue that we've had during the day so sleep is critical to, to recovery and to adaptation and to add you know uh, the the structure that we need the amino acids that we need while that's occurring and making sure that they're there um, is is a untapped opportunity for many people they don't really tend to think about this notion of, oh yeah i can consume protein before bed i mean it doesn't take much you know the mm -hmm. the current evidence says that casein protein is the best source to use which is what we found find in milk um, and, you know, 30 grams is what we would need. So, um, you know, you could get that again from having a supplement and, you know, having the scoop and putting it in, but whey protein would probably work just as well. It just hasn't been studied that the, the reason that casein protein is, is emphasized is because casein takes longer to digest and absorb. And so if you're asleep, then the effects should last longer, but there's evidence out there that whey protein will still be stimulating protein synthesis several hours after its ingestion as well. So whey protein may be just as effective. It just hasn't really been looked at. Well, I have another question related to that. It's a different macro, but since there's such a high incidence of neural activity in during sleep, um, you would probably want to add some carbohydrates to that too, right? Um, yeah, I mean, you don't, so Carbs you carbohydrates, food, that's where I'm thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that you need a lot. I mean, the brain doesn't oh, necessarily yeah. need a lot of carbohydrate, you know, um, the, the RDA for, for carbohydrate is 180 grams. So if you can, you know, most of us consume that by the end of the day, but I think, you know, Some if you more had than others, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But if you had, you know, a glass of milk or even a glass of chocolate milk or something, then you're obviously going to have carbohydrates in that as well. Mm -hmm. And that's probably going to be enough to support, you know, cool. the, the neurological adaptations or any, any sort of neural responses that you're going to have while you're sleeping too. So you're not wrong, but it's, it's, it's you don't not need as much as one would think. Right. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, Hey, this was awesome. You got through it. How do you feel? <laughs> feel great. Yeah. First, this uh, is your first, first podcast. podcast. See, see, you are the expert and I appreciate that. <laughs> and I just want you to know that I am honored that, that you came onto this podcast and, Hello. uh, honor that you invited me. I appreciate it. Ah, don't even worry about it. I, I've had a lot of fun over the past year and a half in all of your classes. And 
I wouldn't know what I know now if it wasn't for you. So I really appreciate it. Thank you, Doc. You've done a great job. So keep it up. You've still got some more work to do. Yes. <laughs> yes, sir. I'm on it. Um, all right. Hey, guys. More that, huh? What was that? Some more push-ups. <laughs> do you got one more in you? Exactly. <laughs> all right. That is it for us. I want to thank everyone for watching this. Uh, this was, this podcast was brought to you by Sea and Land Fitness. Um, thank you, Dr. Harrison. Um it was tremendous, uh, and I'll see you in the fall. All right? Yeah. yeah. All right. That's it. Later, guys. Okay.